I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be this morning in verses 12 through 26. Uh, this morning I'd like to preach a topical message from this passage, and we're expecting another topical sermon next week, and then, God willing, uh, we'll begin a new series in the book of Titus. Uh, but this morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll just say that when I began preparing this message, uh, George Floyd was still alive, and um, there were no protests at that point, and it was somewhere midway through the preparation of this sermon that I saw the video, and somewhere toward the end that I saw footage of some of the protests going on in various cities across our country. And if you've seen some of that footage, probably like me, you've been deeply affected by what's going on in our nation, our world today. And I wondered if these events and the context in which we find ourselves was caused to change uh, my plan for what I was going to preach today. And I've decided, hopefully, through the leading of God's Spirit, to stick with the original plan and to preach on this passage. And one of the reasons is because I think it is immensely relevant to many of the things that are ailing our world right now. And um, it is not my plan to speak directly to a lot of the events going on in our world today, but I trust the connections the, uh, that can be made between this passage and what's going on in our country at this time will be incredibly obvious. And so with that, let me ask that we read together 1 Corinthians 12, uh, beginning in verse 12. Please follow along as I read. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let me just ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would please help us for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
In the Corinthian church, the Corinthian context, uh, Paul shares a number of concerns he has for that congregation. There's a number of problems that are present in that particular church, and Paul addresses them quite directly. Uh, He was concerned uh, that many of the Corinthians were taking part in tribal loyalties uh, to popular Christian teachers. There were apparently factions in the church, some saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and others like that. Uh, He was concerned that within the Corinthian church there was a, a certain sort of toleration for sexual immorality that was present in the church. There were disagreements over uh, matters of conscience that were getting out of hand and dividing the church, a disorderly conduct at the Lord's table, and a disorderly conduct in the church itself uh, through the way in which tongues were being employed in the worship gatherings. But one of the most significant concerns, and perhaps the most significant concern that Paul addresses is the issue of division within the body. If you read the letters of Paul thoughtfully and carefully, you'll soon realize that there's almost no subject that rises to the level of importance in his writings than the subject of Christian love and unity. Here's a list of things that are talked about less in Paul's letters than Christian love and unity. Justification by faith the total depravity of the human heart, the matters of church polity, spiritual gifts, the qualifications for leaders in the church, evangelism and apologetics, matters related to the end times, and marriage and the family. Each of these subjects on their own receives less attention from the Apostle Paul than the subject of Christian love and unity. Now, why read that list? Well, it's certainly not to diminish in any way the importance of these other subjects, but, but rather to elevate in our minds the importance, the stress, the emphasis that is placed on these themes of love and unity in the body of Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians, particularly in our passage in verse 12, Paul seeks to address the division present in the Corinthian church by providing the Corinthians with a framework with which to think about their unity. And in this framework, there's theology that's presented to undergird the unity of the church, and then he provides this image that that is meant to express the unity of the church. As for the theology, that's recorded for us in verses 12 and 13. There we read, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, or Christ's body. We're the body of Christ, we've been united to Christ, and therefore we make up His body, and as there are many members in a human body forming one body, there are many members in the body of Christ, but altogether through their union with the Lord Jesus, they form one body. And then we read verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Those are somewhat difficult phrases to interpret. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. It's not my purpose to open up the meaning of these various phrases and clauses. I just want us to appreciate the very simple point that Paul is stressing here, and that is that our oneness as a church, as God's people, is grounded in our union with Christ. 
is grounded in the unity of the Spirit. Our relationship to Christ by His Spirit is what creates our fundamental unity as believers, what holds the body together, what keeps us united, what keeps us connected together as the body of the Lord Jesus is what Christ Himself has done in uniting us to Him, what the Spirit has done in incorporating us into the body of Christ. We must recognize that the unity and love that exists among Christians, both universally and in local churches, is accomplished by Christ Himself. Christ has made this so. We are united to one another through the blood of Christ, applied to us by the Spirit. People are transformed into lovers of others and are reconciled with God and with others through what Christ has done on the cross. Tensions and divisions between people are only healed by following that man from Nazareth. Uh, They're only solved, they're only addressed, they're only removed by what Jesus Christ has done. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's verse 17, uh, where we read that through the cross Jesus has put to death the enmity or the division or the hostility. He's made peace by His blood, reconciling disparate peoples together, people of different backgrounds, people of different earning potentials, people of different ethnicities. They're reconciled through what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross by His blood, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's only through following this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, attentions and divisions are addressed and healed and people are united together. It doesn't come from a Twitter campaign. It doesn't come from a program of social reform. It comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that what Paul is calling us to and what I hope to call us to through this passage is grounded in the gospel itself. What Jesus Christ has done by His blood to make us one as the people of God. That's the theology undergirding the unity of these Corinthian believers. Then Paul employs the image of the body to express the fundamental unity of the church. So he uses this image of a body, and he employs this image in various ways to establish various points. And I just want us to briefly to consider three of the main points Paul seeks to establish by use of this image of the body. Three main points. First of all, Paul teaches that each and every member has a function in the body and is therefore indispensable. Each and every member has a function in the body and is therefore indispensable. Look with me at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. What is Paul seeking to communicate? Well, there's this fundamental unity of a body, but a body is made up of lots of different parts, right? 
And though I may wish I was a foot or a hand or an eye, God's formed me to be a nose, and I should recognize that if there is no nose on the body, there's no sense of smell. In other words, every part of the body has, has some sort of function in the body, has some sort of place and belonging in the body. Every member needs to be incorporated and fitted into the body in order for the body to function like a body. Each and every member has a function, has a role to play, a, a part to play in the body. And therefore, each member is indispensable. That's Paul's simple argument. You know, if, if, if we don't have eyes, where would be the sense of sight? If we don't have ears, where would be the sense of hearing? If we don't have the nose, where would be the sense of smell? Or a tongue, the sense of taste? Every part is seen to be indispensable in the New Testament vision of the church. Every member is esteemed. Every member performs a function in the body. A second major point Paul seeks to convey by use of this image, and that is that each and every member of the body should be valued. Each and every member of the body should be valued, not just the successful, not just the pretty or the strong or the clever or the accomplished. Every member is to be valued and esteemed. That's what Paul says beginning in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, there's no place for one member to say to the other, I don't need you. There's no need of you in, in this body. Every member is valued and esteemed. But Paul is speaking into a situation, we assume, where there was this factionalism. There were these divides, these party spirits in the church. And he wants to make clear, look, there's no A team and B team in the church. There's to be no rivalry in the church. There's no privileged class in the church. There could be no partiality in the church. Every member is to be esteemed and valued. So away with factionalism, away with selfish ambition and petty rivalries, away with favoritism and bigotry and rival parties and divisions, they have no place in the body of Christ because in the body of Christ, every member is esteemed and valued. A third point that Paul advances through use of this image, 1 Corinthians 12, it's not just that every member has a function, not just that every member should be valued. Paul then says and argues that each and every member should feel sympathy and solidarity with the other members of the body. And I'm working here with verse 26. This is sort of the climax of his argument. The interconnectedness, the unity of the body is such that verse 26 becomes a reality. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. The unity of the body, the interconnectedness of the body is to be such that it produces this mutual sympathy. We enter into one another's experiences, one another's sorrows, one another's sufferings. We also enter into one another's joys. 
If one member suffers, it's like we all suffer together because we're one body. And, and, and if, if one member is honored and is rejoicing, we're all rejoicing with that brother or sister because we're one body. Uh, the picture, maybe for you children, if, if you have a hand and the hand is placed into the fire, is it just the hand that feels the pain? That's the whole body, right? The whole body experiences the pain, and the whole body is in anguish and agony. That's the picture that Paul is using here, uh, that if one member of the body, you can imagine now an individual Christian suffering, it is that the whole church enters into that. There's been a sympathy that's been created, that's been cultivated within the body of Christ. There's been a sort of solidarity that has been brought about by the unity that exists in the body of Christ. Those are some of the basic points Paul is making to the Corinthians in their particular context with this image. In the time that remains, I want us to examine some assumptions Paul seems to be working with in this passage. He doesn't exactly name them, he assumes them. There are certain assumptions that are undergirding Paul's argument. He just assumes them to be true, assumes the Corinthians would understand them. I kind of want to lift them up and bring them out into the light, okay? Assumptions that Paul is working with in this passage. He assumes these things to be true of Christians and true of every church. I hope they're true of our church. Here are some of the assumptions that Paul is working with. Number one, Christians need one another. Christians need one another. Now, Paul doesn't state that. He doesn't say those words, but it seems to be assumed in his argument. Christians need one another. Verse 14, the body does not consist of one member but of many. Like the body needs lots of parts. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Now, when Paul says that, it would seem he's envisioning a situation in which some members of the church are valued more than others. So, so it's like, here's Bob, and here's Bill, and Bob thinks so highly of himself, and others in the church like himself, and he looks down on the gifts of Bill and others like him, and he concludes, you know what, I don't think we really need Bill. After all, what does Bill really bring to the table? He's very much a B-team kind of guy. He's not really core to the church. We don't really need Bill. What we really need is guys like me and, and others like me. And Paul's word to Bob is, no, Bob, you, you actually need Bill. Bob can't say to Bill, I have no need of you. And Mary can't say to Jane, I have no need of you. We should esteem everyone in the church the same and view. Every member of the church is indispensable. We need every member. But did you catch Paul's assumption? We actually do need each other in the body of Christ. He's concerned with partiality, the idea that I would only need some and not others. But, but the assumption that's not in question is that Christians do need one another, and not just the A team, but the B team, not just the hands, but the feet. So as a Christian, I'm not allowed to think, let alone express to another Christian in the body, that I don't need them. Because, as a matter of fact, I do need them, and more perhaps than I realize. I have within my soul, as one who's been born again, been united to Christ, I have within my soul a need for other Christians in my life. I'm not allowed to say I don't need other Christians, 
A hand on its own is worthless. It's useless. It's inanimate. It's lifeless. And if it's detached from a body for too long, it becomes diseased and rotten. But a hand connected to a body is really something. It can move. It has power. It has function. It has animation. It has life. We need the whole body. I am not self-sufficient as a Christian. You are not self-sufficient as a Christian. Listen, a sort of brazen, satisfied self-sufficiency is not a virtue in Christian thought. So, look, I don't need anybody else. I just need me and my Bible, and I'll be good. That's not a thought that's sanctioned by the Bible. The Bible teaches that we need other Christians in our lives. This is actually a type of neediness the Bible commends. To think I need the brothers and sisters of Emmanuel Church is a sanctified thought. You and I should come to depend on the church, to need the church, to need the other members of the body, to become more dependent on the body of Christ as time goes on. It's not a sign of some sort of insecurity or emotional clinginess or something like that. To actually need other Christians, to invite other Christians into your life, to come to depend on the family of God is a sign of Christian maturity. It's just as it should be. We need the community of God's people. Brother, sister, to feel more keenly your need of other Christians is a sign of spiritual health. Now, there's obviously been a lot of debate nowadays surrounding when and how churches should reopen. You know, we're seeking to address that responsibly as a church. It's a tough issue. We've been navigating all kinds of discussions and questions, and we're reading blogs and accessing information from various organizations, trying to do the best we can. And churches are just going to fall in different places on this, and we're trying to figure it out. C- can I just speak into that debate for just a moment and acknowledge one, one little trend I've noticed? Um, when we talk about whether or not the church should resume gathering, let us not act as though something isn't lost by our not gathering. Does that make sense? There's a way we can have that debate that makes it sound like, well, well so what if we don't gather? We could do that for a month, we could do that for three months, we could do that for six months. What is lost at the end of the day? Let's just go online. We should recognize there's a great deal that's lost by our not gathering. That's not to say we need to bump up the timetable or anything like that. We need to prioritize all sorts of other things in the dialogue. But we should recognize there's something that is greatly lost by our inability to gather together. The, the church is, to use the language of the day, essential. The church is essential. It's not an optional add-on in our lives. It's not something we can just throw on a screen online to recreate what we experience here. We need one another. We need to gather together. We need to realize what it is to be the family of God, and we need to see each other and be together, worshiping God, praying to God, being in His presence together as the body of Christ. We need each other. This sort of interaction, the sort of life-on-lifeness that we share together is essential according to God's Word. When you read the descriptions of the early churches and you appreciate how dependent they were on one another and what their shared life looked like together, it, it makes our notions of church life in the West seem kind of small, doesn't it? You look at the church at Jerusalem, especially the way in which that church is described at the end of Acts 2, and what do we read? 
Well, they're sharing all things in common, and they're going from house to house, and they're breaking bread together, and they're devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to the prayers. They're sharing their life together. There's an intimacy, there's a closeness, a connectedness that's present in that church. You might think of the church at Ephesus. People from all sorts of backgrounds converted out of the most the most wild sorts of settings where black magic was present and the occult was present. But now you have apparently some traditional old pious Jews and perhaps even some temple prostitutes and people caught up in the occult and now they're coming together in one body. And Paul teaches them that according to what Christ has done, they've been reconciled together and now they're actually brothers and sisters. They're the household of God, the family of God. They belong to one another. And his vision for them is that they're now to walk in love together. They're to be eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They're to forbear with one another. There's to be this shared life together that they're to have. That's the vision for the church in the New Testament. Well, brothers and sisters, I want us to elevate our sense of our shared life together and our sense of mutual dependence on one another. Christian, you need Bob and Bill and everyone in between. You are not self-sufficient. A a sense of neediness and dependence on the family of God and the body of Christ is a neediness commended in God's Word. The Bible teaches that we need one another, that we need community, we need the body of Christ. So let us seek to cultivate a true and authentic sense of dependence upon one another. Come to need the church more and more and expect to be needed more yourself. A second assumption that I want to highlight that I think needs bringing out in this passage. We certainly need one another. That seems plain enough. Secondly, Christians should care for one another. Christians should care for one another. Not exactly stated, simply assumed. Look with me at verse 24, second half of that verse. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now again, Paul's concern seems to be that these Corinthians were marked by cliques and parties and factions. And the members perhaps only cared for those in their little group. So their their, their care only went so far. And his point is, the same care should extend to everyone. You care for maybe your best friend in the church, your best buddy. Well, you should be caring for everybody, not just those in your little group. But what's the assumption he's working with? That Christians must be practically caring for one another within the body. He just assumes that to be true. He doesn't have to argue for it. He assumes you Corinthian Christians should be caring for each other, which is why he says if you care for one person and not someone else, you're in the wrong. It would not be an acceptable solution to say, well, I just won't care for anybody. Therefore, I'll be treating everybody the same. No, he assumes you should be caring for one another, and so that care should extend to all. You all would have the same care Same regard for one another. So what does that mean for me as a Christian? I'm to recognize that I have this privilege, I have this responsibility to care for others within the body. 
to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, to love my brothers and sisters and to esteem their needs more highly than my own. I'm to pursue opportunities as a Christian, as a member of the body. I'm to pursue opportunities to practically care for each one. That's not to say I have to meet everybody's individual needs, but it is to say I'm to have this fundamental orientation. I'm to care for others. I'm to care for people in the body of Christ, because in the body of Christ, we look out for each other. We need each other. We care for one another. That's the New Testament vision for the church, that the various parts making up the body, some weak, some strong, some feet, some hands, they all care for one another because they're one body. They all are looking for, searching for practical ways to love one another and to express that mutual care that must be present in the body of Christ. We were at an elders meeting, maybe this is a couple months ago, uh, maybe my fellow elders remember this. We pray for various members every time we gather together, and there was one sister in particular we were praying for. I won't say her name. I don't want to embarrass her, but um, we all sort of spontaneously recognized just how filled up this woman's life was with good works, just caring for the body of Christ. And that care extending, sort of permeating the entire body. This woman had filled up her life with just doing good to others, caring for this one and that one and having eyes open, large eyes to the needs of the body. And if someone was sick or unwell or someone maybe just had a baby or or something was going on in life at the church, she wants to be involved providing help and providing care. And I just thought, what a life well lived, populating your life with thousands of acts of kindness and care, to do as Paul exhorts Titus, to be a Christian zealous for good works. That's not a life wasted. To purpose, I'm going to have my eyes open, Sunday by Sunday, small group by small group, week by week, I'm going to have my eyes open to the practical needs of this body of believers And where there is an opportunity for me to serve, for me to help, for me to provide care and aid and relief, I'm going to stand in the gap. And I'm going to fill my life with caring for other people. I think that's something of what Paul is calling us to. He says we're to care for one another and have the same care for one another. Christians should be looking out for the needs of each other in the body of Christ. It's not just in the body of Christ, obviously. Paul says in Galatians, we're to do good to all, but he does say especially the household of faith. And so, so, so in the church, there should be this, this care, this mutual regard. We're trying to help one another, care for one another, take care of the family of God. So I encourage you, brother, sister, ask yourself this question, how am I? showing practical care for my brothers and sisters in the church? How can I fill my life with good works of mercy and charity and kindness toward the other members of my church? I encourage you, let that kindness and care extend to all, not just those you're closest with in the church. Let that kindness and care extend to the furthest reaches in the local body. A third and final assumption I'd like to highlight We're to need one another, we're to care for one another. Thirdly and finally, this is what I think Paul is assuming as he works with this image of the body. Christians must meaningfully invest in relationships with one another. 
Christians must meaningfully invest in relationships with one another. Paul's expectations for our connectedness, our intimacy, our mutual dependence on one another is high. He says we're one body. He says in other parts in his letters that we're a family. Not that we're like a family, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in the family, the household of God. He says we're to love and care for one another. We're to root out all division. We're to show no partiality. We're to live in harmony. It would seem to me like the Apostle Paul has a higher expectation for the sort of connectedness that should exist in churches than most would expect. This is a high ideal, this picture he's putting before us in 1 Corinthians 12. A high ideal for the sort of intimacy and closeness that should exist, should be present within the body of Christ. And the closeness is so profound that verse 26 is to become our experience. That if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You could imagine a family in the church, and they've just gotten a diagnosis about some sort of life-threatening or or life-altering condition in one of their children, and they're, they're broken by this, and they're weeping. And the picture in verse 26 is like the church comes alongside that hurting family, that suffering little one, and they enter into the suffering, they sympathize. That their suffering, their trial, their hardship, it becomes our own. You could imagine a, a woman in the church who um, comes by herself. She's married, but she comes alone. Husband's not converted. And the church quietly for some time has been praying for the conversion of this woman's husband. We'll call him Jim. And then there's that prayer meeting where she stands up. And she says, I want to bless God that the Lord has finally answered our prayers. And my husband, Jim, after 20 years of praying, he's been converted. And the whole prayer meeting bursts with joy. You see, that that woman's joy, that sister's joy, that member of the body who's experiencing honor and happiness and joy in the presence of God, we enter into that. It becomes our joy. Our shared life together is such that we win together and we lose together. We suffer together and we celebrate together. That's the picture that Paul is putting before these Corinthians. So I ask this question, how can we realize the ideals of this passage? I mean, how is it that a church can really achieve what Paul is after here? Because you can't fake this, right? This can't be feigned. It can't be manufactured to actually suffer together and celebrate joy together. So how are we going to do it? I see no other way than being personally, deliberately, and regularly committed to investing meaningfully in relationships in the church. If I'm to accomplish this vision for connectedness, for closeness, For being truly a family, a functioning body, I have to buy into the vision. I have to give myself to relationships. I have to give myself to the people around me. You have to really be invested in someone to actually suffer when they suffer. 
You can't realize the ideals of this passage by just showing up on Sundays and sitting through a service. I can't realize the ideals of this passage by just enjoying a sermon. I have to get my hands dirty in the lives of the people of God and get to know them. I need to invest in the relationship such that I can actually bear the burdens of God's people, as Paul calls us to do, so that I become so invested, so sympathetic to my brothers and sisters, achieve such a level of solidarity with them that when they suffer, I suffer. When that member of the body feels pain, I feel pain. And when that brother or sister is honored and exalted and exuberant and jubilant with joy over what God has done in their lives, I enter into that joy. Isn't this a beautiful picture? It sounds like a family to me. I'm leaving in a couple of hours to go to Hilton Head. Somehow our whole family is going to be able to make time this week to be together. There's like 20 of us or something like that with all the grandkids and everything. It's very rare that we get, I'm the second of seven children, it's very rare that we get everybody together with in-laws and grandkids and all that kind of stuff. But inevitably when we are together, especially for we'll be together about a week, we're going to share our lives with one another. And, and it's always true that maybe this one isn't doing so well, it's been having a hard time lately. And this one over here has just accomplished some achievement, personal achievement or something like that, and this one's anxious about this thing going on, and, and this one just got a promotion or graduated or something like that. And, and, and what happens in a family like ours is that we enter into those wins and losses together. One member of the family just achieves some great thing. We just celebrate together. It's, it's, it's not manufactured. It's just organic and natural. It just rises spontaneously when we're together. And if one is hurt and one is down and one is going through some sort of trial, we commiserate together. We sympathize together because that's how families operate. That is precisely the picture that Paul wants to apply to the local church. We suffer together as God's people. We rejoice together as God's people. We sympathize with one another as God's people. We have a sense of solidarity with one another as God's people because we're a body. We're a family. And if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. If one member is hurting, we're all hurting. And we're not going to be good till that member is okay. We need each other. We care for each other. And we must invest. We must invest meaningfully in relationships in the body of Christ. God clearly expects that I should be investing in the brothers and sisters in the church. I'm to be building relationships, investing in people, giving my energy and my time and my life to them. It's possible for some of us, this vision, if we accept it, embrace it, buy into it, for some of us it could be that we need to elevate in our minds the sense of importance that church should have in our lives. We're not just employees, we're not just husbands and wives and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers, we're members of the household of God. The church, the family of God, the body of Christ is to be part of the bedrock of our lives. And I should think it's, it's not enough that I do my job well in my place of employment and that I'm leading my family well or something like that. I'm to be thinking also about my church family. 
to the community that God has created by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And I'm to think, my time, my energy, my life, I'm going to give it to these people. This is God's design for me because I need other Christians in my life. I'm supposed to be caring for other Christians in the body of Christ, and I must be investing meaningfully in relationships in the church. Friends, in closing, we must view our church family, the body of Christ, as one of the fundamental pillars of our lives. The Christian church is not an add-on. It's not of secondary importance. It is to be fundamental, essential to our lives. Let me close with these words. We live in a divided age. You just got to turn on the news to see that. We live in a culture that is fractured and dislocated. Against the backdrop of such a culture, such a situation going on in our nation today, how beautiful and wonderful and relevant does the church appear? There is a city on a hill. There is a community where love and peace and justice abound. And listen, when you talk to your friends, whether it's on the college campus or in the workplace or you engage on social media, whatever, and they feel helpless and hopeless as they watch the headlines, as they try to dissect these complex issues, these painful issues that are present in our national life today, you should be able to tell them this. Though it's like that out there, it's not like that in my church. The church of Jesus Christ is fundamentally different. The church as a community is completely different to what we see going on in our world today. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, if you follow the man from Nazareth, peace and justice and unity and harmony and love and mutual care and kindness prevail. Come to the church. And you'll see life as it's meant to be lived. You'll see relationships as they're meant to be. You'll see people from various backgrounds and various preferences and various experiences culturally living together as one family. And you know what? In the church, we accept each other, we embrace each other, we sympathize with one another, we suffer together, we celebrate together, we share life together against the backdrop of such division and fracture. May the church truly shine, the body of Christ, that community where people really do need one another, where they really do care for each other, they really do sympathize with one another. We have an opportunity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to show the world something completely different. It must be true in this local church. It must be true in this local body that we really are a family, that we come to something of this ideal the Apostle Paul is holding out for us. Well, may God help us to show to the world a picture of community that is completely different than what we see in our world today, a picture of community that is only possible through what Jesus Christ, God's own Son, has done in reconciling people through His blood. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, the picture that is held forth in Scripture of your bride, the church, of the body of Christ and of the family of God is a beautiful picture to us. We thank you that by your initiative, through what you have done through your Son on the cross, we've been drawn in, invited in to this community. You have given us a place at the table. You've adopted us into the family. And some of the relationships we experience here are the sweetest that we have under heaven. We thank you for the church. We pray for our world. We pray that that these ideals, these values, these realities that are present in the new humanity, the new community that you create would prevail more in our world today. That as the gospel is spread, more and more people would come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. That more would be united to the Lord Jesus and brought into the family of God. We pray, Father, that you would help your churches throughout the world to shine brightly as cities on a hill, showing to the world what human flourishing is like, what the kingdom of God is like, what it looks like to truly be made a family to be reconciled through what Jesus has done. We pray you would help us in our local body and in our community. Help us to be faithful. Help us to realize these values and ideals. Work them within us by the power of your spirit and by the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus. Make us united together, committed to love one another, committed to live out this beautiful picture of what it means to be the body of Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.